Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and this is found on page 984 in the Church Bibles. This morning we'll be looking at verses 5 through 11, uh, but we'll uh, start our reading back at the beginning of the chapter. If, you, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Jew, uh, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Slave free, but Christ is all and in all. Last time uh, we were together, we uh, highlighted that Paul's letter of Colossians, uh, we were coming to a, a transitional uh, part in Paul's letter. Uh, Paul was moving from explaining uh, the grace of uh, God's salvation in Jesus to now talking about the, the implications of it, the application of it. And uh, it's good for us when we're looking at the letters uh, of the New Testament to keep that in mind. Uh, that's a good structure uh, to understanding uh, the movement of how uh, the scriptures are given to us. Uh, sometimes people portray Christianity as simply a moral system. It's just a, a system of ethics. And oftentimes people can become very irritated with Christians as though they're just uh, looking down on others as being holier than thou. Uh, they just want to uh, look down on other people that don't live the same way they do. But Paul's point is, is that everything that he has said uh, is the foundation for how Christians are to live in response. Having established uh, God's works and the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we are now to live our lives shaped by that reality. But there's also another uh, danger, and that is the danger of only thinking about what God has done and divorcing it from the way that we live our lives. And Paul uh, marries those two ideas together. You remember last time we looked at how he, he summarized that in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Those who have come to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, it is meant to shape the way that they live now in response. Uh, that those who have acknowledged that Christ is King, 
are to orient their lives, understanding his lordship over all and his coming again at the end of time. And so what we believe ought to make a difference in the way that we live. Uh, but in that order, uh, it flows out from our beliefs. And Paul is giving us the foundation of what we believe in regards to Jesus in his person and in his work and so this morning, as we're coming back to Colossians 3, uh, we're beginning to look at some of the more practical sections of Paul's letter. But we always want to keep in mind that everything Paul is saying here is built on that foundation. He's addressing those who have come to understand uh, Christ and are now living in response to his lordship. And one of the things that we see here in Colossians 3 is, is that Paul uses... Uh, a way of speaking that he does in many of his letters. Uh, it seems to be a, a very uh, um, popular way that Paul liked to, to think about the Christian life. He talks about putting on and putting off. You see that there in verse uh, 5, for instance. Put to death what is earthly in you. And then later he will say in uh, verse 9, uh, put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. He'll say it again in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And so as Paul is trying to describe how should a Christian live, if we believe these things about Jesus, how does it shape our lives? And you notice that Paul begins to say, it's, it's, much, it's much like the way we might use a set of clothes. Uh, it involves putting off one set of clothes and now wearing a different set of clothes. Uh, I remember one of my friends at one point in his life, um, he went through a considerable weight change. And uh, maybe you can resonate with uh, that experience or you know someone who has, but in his experience, his weight changed so much that he concluded he could no longer wear the clothes that he was once wearing. And so he got rid of them all, uh, basically and got new clothes, or he had different clothes to wear. He found himself in a different state uh, because of the change that was happening to his body that he now found that his clothes no longer fit. And, and it would be inappropriate for him to wear the same clothes that he once did. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying something similar about the Christian life, that they recognize that they're in a different state now. And now they're going through and they're evaluating all their clothes. It would be like going into your closet and pulling out article after article and saying, now does this one still fit? Uh, should I keep this? Or does this have to go? And Paul is saying the Christian life involves not just putting on certain virtues. He's not just saying, if you're a Christian, you should be marked by kindness. It's not just adding to your life. It also involves... Uh, a circumspection of what needs to come away from your life, what needs to be taken out and removed. And so as Paul talks about how the gospel changes a person, he's saying it's going to involve removing some things from your life and putting other things into your life that may not have been there before or enhancing them as we live in light of the Lordship of Christ. And so that's important that we understand the Christian life is not just adding uh, virtues to our life, but also making a break from the past. 
Well, this morning we want to look at uh, uh, part of that uh, section. Uh, we want to look at how uh, we are to put to death uh, certain aspects of our former way of life. And we want to see that because Christ has come uh, to give us life in him, then we are to put to death uh, what is earthly in us. We want to look at verses 5 through 11 this morning. And we want to look at Paul's command to put to death what is earthly. And then we want to consider uh, what Paul means when he says put on the new self. So we're really looking at uh, two aspects uh, here that Paul is describing. The old self and the new self or sometimes described as the old man and the new man. Well, first, we want to think about uh, the command that he gives there in verse 5. Put to death what is earthly in you. That's, that's uh, strong language uh, when Paul says, put it to death. Um, if you found uh, a rodent in your home, if you found uh, a mouse or a rat or you found a snake or something in your home, uh, you would take... Uh, serious measures to try and get rid of it because you recognize that that mouse or that rat or whatever it is uh, can contaminate your food right it can it can do damage to your home uh, it can eat away at the wiring it can knock over uh, ornaments that are uh, hanging uh, it can do damage to your home it can spread disease and so you don't look at that and treat it as a trivial thing uh, you would set a trap you're trying to get rid of that mouse Ultimately, you're trying to put it to death or to make it dead to you. It's no longer part of your life's domain. When Paul is talking here, though, he's not talking about a snake. He's not talking about a mouse. Paul's talking about what is earthly in you. And you remember last time Paul was explaining what he meant by that. When he said, seek the things that are above where Christ is, he was contrasting that with what is earthly. What is earthly is all that excludes reference to Christ's lordship. What is earthly in you is, is that which lives without reference to the exaltation of Christ. And so here that explains why Paul says what he says with such strength of language. When he says put to death what is earthly in you, he's saying everything about you that lives as though Christ is not Lord needs to die. It needs to break off. It needs to be no more because it doesn't fit with what you have come to believe about Jesus. It, it, it no longer uh, is appropriate uh, for those who have come to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And so that is why he uses such strong language of put to death. It is diametrically opposed uh, to acknowledging uh, Christ's lordship. But the, uh, uh, the things on earth then uh, uh, are set in contrast with Christ and his exaltation. These vices are to have no place in the life of the believer uh, because they have come uh, to uh, a new state through their union with Christ. Now that might sound strange though if we are reading Paul's uh, thought. When he says, put to death what is earthly in you, you remember just a couple verses before in verse 3, he said, For you have died, and your life is in Christ. It is hidden with Christ in God. Paul has described the Christian as having died to their former way of life. 
Back in chapter 2, at verse 11, he says, In him you were circumcised uh, with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh. Paul is talking about there has happened some kind of death already. You've died to your former way of life. And you died to that former way of life when you became united with Jesus through faith. When you were brought by the work of the Spirit to a union with Christ, the giver of new life. There was a a break off from that way of death. But now Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. If you have died, why does Paul still have to command these Christians to put to death what is earthly in you? And that's really capturing something of the dynamic or the experience of the Christian life. That something has happened. They have died to their former way of life. And yet there is still an outworking that is happening that needs to be processed in their life's experience. They need to consider themselves as dead now in their life's experience because they have died to that way of life. They have been brought to this new creation in Christ. And now they need to live in that way. They need to wear the uniform that fits their part. They need to dress themselves as those belonging to the kingdom of God. And so when Paul says, put to death these things, he's telling them to live according to how they are. They are alive in Christ. And these things are no longer to characterize their their way of living. Uh, So there is an ongoing work uh, of how they are to live. But notice as well something else about Paul's command here. This isn't just a, a bare command that he throws out at them saying, put to death these ways of living. But he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Anytime you see the word therefore, you're asking, what is that there for? And Paul is really bridging backwards, saying everything that I've just said, Your life is in Christ. It's because you have been raised with Christ. It's because you have been united with Christ through faith. It's because you belong to Jesus that you are now no longer to live these ways. And what Paul is saying is what we were saying before about union with Christ, this relationship with Christ, serves as the basis for why they should stop living this way. It also serves as the empowerment of how they can live this way. Paul is telling them no longer to live this way because the spirit of their God, through their union with Christ, will enable them to no longer be bound by these ways. There is a transformative effect that comes There is a working of the spirit in a person's life that empowers them to live differently than they once did. That's what Paul is getting at here. Put to death, therefore, because of what is. Now it begins to work its way out in your own experience. Well, what is it exactly that he wants them to put to death? He mentions a number of things in these verses, but we can break them down into two groups. There are uh, what we could call uh, sexual sins or sins of the body. And then there are the sins of speech, or we might call them the relational sins. Uh, 
there in verse 5, he mentions five different sins uh, that all uh, uh, pertain to uh, the desires of the body. He, he describes them there in verse 5. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Sexual immorality is, uh, eventually becomes a very broad term. It becomes an all-encompassing term to refer to all sinful actions of the body uh, with respect to sexual activity. Impurity, or uncleanness, also is a word that is used in conjunction alongside of sexual immorality. Again, just casting another shade uh, of emphasis to the whole realm. You have the idea of desire. Not that desire itself is wrong, uh, but desire that is a contrary to God's will is wrong. Uh, passions or lust is also emphasized. And then finally, uh, you have covetousness. The, the last two, evil desire and covetousness, uh, at first sight could all uh, be thought of as general sins, very broad uh, descriptions. But in light of the context, uh, it's probably easiest and best to see them as also pertaining uh, to sexual sins as well. But notice what Paul says uh, there at the end. He says, uh, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now we could come and look at a passage like this, and maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, it doesn't make sense. Oh, why does the Bible stress so much about the importance of sexual purity? Uh, why does it matter to God what I do with my body sexually? Why does it matter to God what is going on in the inward recesses of my own mind? Why is coveting such a big deal? It doesn't affect another person, does it? If I'm just craving in the inside, uh, what difference does that make? And so we can push back at the notion of why does God care about what I do with my body? Or why does God care about what's going on inwardly? And we begin to depict or assume uh, a malmotive uh, to God's judgment or to God's sovereignty. But Paul says something very striking in these verses and very illuminating to that whole objection. Because as he says all of these sins, and you notice there at the end, he says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And that doesn't, may not seem immediately clear to us. We might hear these sins but we don't recognize how does Paul get from coveting to idolatry? Isn't that a leap? But what is coveting? Coveting, the word here, means to desire more and more of something. Uh, that's why it's dis uh, translated as covetousness, or it's also translated as consuming ambition. That it's talking here not just about desire, but a controlling desire for more, a craving that is not satisfied, but that is oriented around one's desires. Coveting, when we covet something, uh, we desire something more and more. When we are consumed with something, it's not just something privately going on in our minds. It is an expression of what we are saying is really important or what makes my life complete. It's saying, this is what is worthy of my life. 
When we covet something, we're saying that this is most important, and if I have it, then it will make me complete. When we covet, our hearts are giving a, a transcript uh, of what is most important. And what Paul is saying is, is that when you piece all that together, this will complete me. This is what I want. This is worthy of my life. When our coveting is being de de pulled apart, Paul says, that is your God. It's, it's functioning as what is most important to you. It's what helps you make sense of your world. It's what directs the way that you live. And Paul says it's taking the place of what is most important. And anything that takes the place of the living God becomes an idol. An idol is not simply a wooden statue that is painted and overlaid with gold. An idol is whatever we're looking to as most important. What will bring me satisfaction in life? What will complete me? What makes my life worthy? And what directs me in the way to live? And Paul here is highlighting that when we are living for something, when there's this consuming desire to live for pleasure, it ultimately can amount to idolatry. And so the reason why Paul highlights these sexual sins is knowing that a people that don't live under the lordship of Christ are going to live ultimately for pleasure. And if we're living for pleasure, then we are ultimately giving ourselves over uh, to an idol. Instead of pushing back against any interrogation uh, about why God cares what we do with our bodies or cares what is going on in our minds and hearts, scripture would direct us to step back and to simply evaluate our hearts. And if you do that, if you ask, what does my heart's desire say is most important? What is my heart's desire saying, if I just had this, then I would be satisfied? What is my heart's desire saying that I am committed to and that I, I direct my life around this? And Paul is saying, if it's for pleasure, it's an idol. Coveting is, an idol, is idolatry. And so uh, Paul here is uh, pressing us to understand our hearts. Uh, are, they're a written transcript. We can pursue things. We can desire things. But when those desires become all-consuming, they're really controlling you. They're really binding you, and you're expecting them to fulfill you in a way that only God can. And so Paul here pushes back uh, by highlighting there is aspects of a way of life that might make sense for a person who doesn't believe in God. If there is no God, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We're nothing more than a wasted passion, as some would say. Paul's saying, but the premise isn't true. Because there is a God, and you are bound to him in faith through the Lordship of Christ. If you've come to believe that, then don't live as someone who opposes the belief in God. Do you see how those two things don't fit together? And so Paul is simply saying, be consistent. If there is a, a God, if there is the resurrection of Christ, then live in light of it. If there isn't, then we are of all people most to be pitied. 
But we have to work out what we believe and then be consistent with that belief. And so Paul here is arguing there is aspects of a way of life that are to be put away. You notice there he goes on to emphasize the seriousness of these sins. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked. Uh, Paul is emphasizing the seriousness of these things because they are ultimately uh, turning in a different direction. Uh, He says that on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Again, maybe your gut reaction is to not talk about the wrath of God. Any mention of the wrath of God is not helpful, and we shouldn't talk about it. But if you're going to be faithful in the way that you handle Scripture, you're going to see that the wrath of God is mentioned throughout the Scriptures. And so we have to account for it. We also have to account for the, the fact that the wrath of God expresses God's hostility to all that is dishonorable or that is against his holy will. But here, Paul is emphasizing the wrath of God with a particular purpose. The wrath of God is important not only because it emphasizes that there will be an ultimate uh, judgment of justice being uh, executed, but Paul's purpose here is to highlight that it is on account of uh, these sins that the wrath of God is coming. This is what sin merits. This is where sin leads. This is what sin deserves. But we want to be careful here because Paul's purpose is emphasizing that this is what sin deserves. But scripture is very clear that those who have been united with Christ have been delivered from the coming wrath of God. They are, they are delivered from condemnation. Paul writes elsewhere, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He writes again, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Paul's point in mentioning the wrath of God here is to say this is the basis upon which God's judgment is coming. This will be the basis upon which God brings his condemnation, his verdict of judgment against uh, sinners. And therefore, those who have been united with Christ should not be living in the same way as those who are going to be condemned. Uh, for their sins and their life of idolatry. Those who have come to know God ought to live different than those who are living for an idol. But as serious as Paul makes those sins out to be, you notice that Paul uh, also extends mercy and hope. He says there in verse 7, in these two you once walked when you were living in them. You hear Paul there that Even those who practice this lifestyle, even those whose life was marked by lust, whose lifestyle was marked by covetousness, whose lifestyle was marked by sexual immorality, Paul's the first to say the church of Colossae is filled with them. This is their story. But it's their story of their past. It's no longer the way that they are to live because they have been redeemed because they have been united with Christ and they have been brought from a state of sin now to a state of grace. You see how Paul is able to see these sins warrant God's judgment, but God is a God who also rescues us from what we deserve. And so the Colossians could affirm that. 
We are to live differently now than the way that we once lived. What we believe is to make a difference. So they were willing to do this, ultimately because they were captivated by their exalted king. Again, that's what Paul meant when he said, set your minds on things that are above. What am I living for? Am I just living for pleasure? Paul's saying, live not for the earthly things, but live knowing that Christ has ascended and Christ is coming again. So he tells them to put to death uh, these uh, deeds of the body, these uh, sins of the body. But he also mentions other sins there in verse 8 and 9. He says, but you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Uh, again, there's much overlap in these terms. Uh, Paul's purpose, though, is to describe the attitude of anger and ill towards others that lead to such a nasty and abusive speech towards others. And most likely the reason is, is because Paul is sensitive to the fact that abusive language uh, can divide a people, uh, that the way that people speak about others uh, can split a community of faith. And so Paul here is wanting to protect the unity of God's people to protect the church. And so he, he especially zeroes in on the danger of how we speak about one another and to one another. Uh, and so he, he highlights uh, uh, abusive speech, which again calls us to examine, do we use our words to beat others down or in order to build them up? If we had a, a playback recording the way that we speak about others, uh, what would we find? And how would we find uh, we speak about others, especially in the church? There is a commentator, Philip uh, Arthur, who makes a very solemn statement when he says, it is no small matter to have acquired a reputation for being an accuser of the brethren. It says something about who we resemble. It is no small matter to have built the reputation of being an accuser of the brethren. It says something about who we resemble. And so as we think about our speech, there's something toxic that can come out when we are trying to beat down others, when we are trying not to build them up with the word of truth, but rather to slanderously embarrass them, to diminish them, to demean them. And so here Paul is uh, seeking to call attention uh, to these evil vices of even how we speak towards one another. So put to death the old self, uh, the deeds of the body, the deeds of our speech. But he also emphasizes or uh, tells us to consider how we are to be putting on the new self. Notice that in verses uh, 10 and 11. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Again, you see that language of put on and put off. Uh, but notice there in verse 10, he says, and have put on the new self. Uh, some of the older translations use the language of put on the new man. Uh, put off the old man and put on the new man. That might sound archaic, but it actually it actually zeroes in on something that we could easily miss in some of the newer translations. When Paul talks about putting off, he's 
talking not just about isolated sins, like on a graph, dots on a, a map. When he's saying put off the old self, Paul's talking about your fallen human nature. And when he talks about putting on the process of putting on the new self, he's ultimately talking about living in light of our new state in Christ. You remember we read there in Genesis chapter 3 that after Adam and Eve sinned, uh, they, they knew they were naked. And so they tried to sew fig leaves to cover themselves. They tried to clothe themselves. But the clothes that they made were inappropriate. They didn't work because, one, they were still filled with shame. And uh, they turned away from God. Uh, and two, uh, uh, they, uh, they hid themselves. So they were still filled with shame and they still turned away from God. And ultimately, God had to provide clothing for them himself. God had to give them garments to cover their nakedness, but also so that they would be able to still have that relationship with God, to be able to draw uh, before him in worship. What Paul is saying here is, is that we are those who share a fallen nature in Adam. Remember, back in chapter 2, he said, putting off the body of flesh, putting off our old sinful nature, and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That by nature we wear the clothes of Adam. As our federal head. He is the one who represents us before God. But what we need is a new representative. We need to have the clothes of Christ. And what Paul is arguing is, is that those who have come to be united with Christ. Are now to wear clothes that resemble Christ. They are to live their lives uh, recognizing Christ in the way that they live. Something has begun uh, that has not yet been, uh, uh, been made complete. They are being renewed uh, in the knowledge of God. You see that in verse 10, having put on the new self, having put on Christ, uh, and that process of living more and more in Christ, they are uh, being renewed in the knowledge after their creator. You remember, what was one of the things that Paul prayed for the church in Colossae? He prayed for many things. He prayed that they would walk in a manner that was worthy of their calling. He also prayed that they would know God, that they would increase in the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God was at the heart of the fall. Adam and Eve uh, striving for knowledge. But here, Paul's prayers is that they would know God in order that they would be able to live rightly. And he says that's a, something that's working itself out in a process. That they're being renewed to think rightly about God. So that they're able to live trusting his ways. They're not suspicious of why would God care how I treat my body. Or why would God care what I'm doing with my mind and my desires. But knowing that God is good. Knowing God is gracious. As they know who God is. They're willing to yield to his ways. And you remember what Paul said about Christ. Christ is the image of the invisible God. It's in Christ that we, we regain a certainty of who God is. That we're able to trust him. And now Paul is saying you're being renewed in the knowledge of God. You're being renewed in the image of our creator. And that is how the Christian now lives their life, as they're being renewed in the knowledge 
they're able to put to death those sinful deeds because they don't crave them. Rather, they delight to submit to their God. You notice as well, uh, Paul ends this section in verse 11. He says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul's not denying that there are these distinctions in society, but he's saying that these things aren't all important. He's not bound by simply what society dictates, but rather something else is central. Something else is taking a priority. It's Christ. And so as Paul highlights this, he's highlighting that Christ has become all-important to them. Many of you know the famous commentator Matthew Henry. Uh, he has a commentary uh, throughout the whole Bible. His father, Philip, uh, many of the, those commentary notes were based on his father's sermons, Philip. But Philip Henry, uh, who lived a long time ago, once said this, with some carnal pleasures, and sexual delights are all and in all. Let them have their fill of with these, and they have enough. Wine and music and dancing and mirth and jollity, sports and pastimes and recreations, horses and hounds and hawks and harlots, these their hearts are on, rioting uh, and drunkenness, making provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof, and will this do. But then listen to what he says next. In sober sadness... Tell me, can you think that you were made and maintained for this purpose? Is this really all that life is about? So Paul earlier said, coveting is idolatry. And what Philip Henry is saying is, is that living for pleasure is ultimately going to be bitter because it does not satisfy either. Idols always disappoint. And so Paul here, as he's exhorting these Christians to put to death the deeds of the body, he's saying, if you've come to know Jesus, then let that direct the way that you evaluate how you live. What clothes need to be taken out of the closet and given away because they are no longer appropriate? And what articles should now adorn the way that we live? When we have come to be made alive in Christ, we will see that the former clothes are no longer fitting to wear because they don't fit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would grant to us uh, understanding, that you would help us to take stock of how it is that we are living our lives and what our desires teach us and reveal about ourselves and our understanding of you. We pray, Lord, that we would not see uh, the scriptures as simply bare naked commands, uh, but that we would see them in the context of your purposes and of your grace. And we pray that uh, by the empowerment of your spirit, we would be able uh, to live a life that is devoted to your will, uh, trusting in your ways and finding our satisfaction in you. We ask for these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.